Uh, Church 21, I'm Trenton Walker, one of the leaders of the South Shore congregation. Uh, you may know me by my voice as being Evan Walker's brother. Uh, so if anyone knows Evan, I'm his older brother, and I'm just so excited to like tell everyone I meet that's part of Church 21 that, that we're brothers and we're both in the same church. God brought us both at the same place at the same time. Uh, to do his work. Uh, and so I'm thankful just to have the opportunity to be with you here today. Uh, and just to start things up, off, I wanted to ask you a question. Have you ever compared yourself with someone else? Have you ever compared yourself with someone else? Now, okay, maybe we're just getting warmed up, but I was expecting like maybe a couple nods. Maybe, are, are, we, did, are we listening yet, or did we already get distracted? Have you ever compared yourself with someone else? Yes, yes. And I want you to take a moment to actually think about that, because who are you comparing yourself with, if you were to think of something recent? Uh, and were you evaluating that you were somehow better than this person in some way, or worse than this person in some way? Uh, and, and just how recent or how often does this happen that we find ourselves comparing with others? Now, I'll be honest, I'll just uh, speak for myself. I know probably something happened this morning where I compared myself to someone, but last night I was hanging out with Evan, and we were talking about the Extreme Character Challenge, which was somewhat physically demanding. Some of the, the guys from uh, the, the church went on this Extreme Character Challenge, and uh, I was validating my efforts and also my fatigue by comparing myself with those who are in our pastoral team that I see as being the most fit, the most in shape. And I was saying to Evan, if, if they were tired, then like for sure, I had good reason to be tired. And, and I know that in this, I was just seeking my own validation. And, and I think that's often what happens when we're comparing ourselves with others. We're either feeling, uh, we're, we're, not, we're not feeling very important, so we want to validate ourselves, or we, we're just in our pride, we want to just be acknowledged for, for where we've arrived in, in whatever place uh, of life we are. And so this is something that we wrestle with. This, this desire for validation, this desire for knowing our value, we wrestle with this. And, I, and as we're returning to Mark today, we're actually going to see that the disciples were discussing their value. Uh, but just before we get to that, uh, things start off in Mark 9.30. I'll just read these two verses for you again. And if you want to return with me to Mark 9.30, you can follow along. So here's where things start off in all of this. They went on from there and passed through Galilee. And he did not want anyone to know, for he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days he will rise. But they did not understand the saying and were afraid to ask him. So at this point, it's important to know that Jesus, he only has a few days left with his disciples before his crucifixion. And, and for the second time in the Gospel of Mark, Jesus is predicting his coming death. And, and just in the way he describes this, this coming death, uh, his coming crucifixion to the disciples, he actually uses almost a play on words when he says the Son of Man is going to be betrayed into the hands of men. This is, this is just showing us that Jesus, God the Son, who lived on earth as a man among men, a human among humans, was going to be rejected by them. And so Jesus, we know that he came to give himself for men or for mankind. That's 
for all of God's creation for, for humans. Uh, he came to serve others, not to serve himself, yet he was going to be killed by those who he came to serve, whom he came to serve. And so just take a moment to, to let that sink in and process that before we keep going on. And so the disciples, they were walking with Jesus. He wanted them to know where, where his ministry was going and in turn, what would it mean then for the, the ministry of the disciples? And so he, he's sharing with them, with his care for them. Uh, but he, he, let's have a little look at how the disciples were processing things. Because we just recently went through the passage where uh, Peter, James, and John saw the transfiguration of Jesus. Okay, And so word is surely passing, uh, making its way through the group uh, just about who Jesus really was. And now this is, this is exciting because the disciples were beginning to realize that they were walking with the Messiah, the one that they had been waiting for. And so something that's important to just consider here is that the Jews, the Messiah that they were waiting for isn't really in line with what Jesus was saying about himself and what he was teaching about what his ministry would be. The, the Messiah that the Jews were waiting for was someone who was going to come and overthrow their oppressors at that time, uh, it was the Romans. Uh, they were in, the, the Messiah was going to establish his rule and reign. And so when Jesus is revealing his true purpose, it seems to be the exact opposite of what the disciples are expecting, uh, what the Jewish people were looking for and looking to in the coming of the Messiah. Instead of establishing rule and reign, he's going to serve and be humiliated He's going to suffer all at the hands of those whom he came to serve. Now, this, this isn't new. This isn't something that we haven't seen before. Because in Isaiah 53, you don't have to go there. I'll read it for you. But it was actually prophesied by the prophet Isaiah. He said, He was despised and rejected by man, a man of suffering who knew what sickness was. He was like someone people turned away from. He was despised, and we didn't value him. So let's just think about the disciples walking with Jesus and, and hearing him describe his coming ministry. Have you ever been told something that just did not compute? It just does not register. You're expecting to hear one thing, and you hear the other. Well, imagine the disciples we are here today with the Bible, with God's Word. We've got the whole story. It just takes some time and study to see how the prophecies of the Old Testament connect with the fulfillment of Jesus' work in the New Testament. But the disciples, they were living through the fulfillment of these prophecies. And so what Jesus is saying does not compute because it goes against generations of interpretation, of interpretation about the, the coming Messiah. So we're here today, and we, we know that Jesus, he served, he was humiliated, he suffered, just as the prophet Isaiah prophesied in Isaiah 53, 5. He says, he was pierced because of our rebellion, crushed because of our iniquities. The punishment for our peace was on him, and we are healed by his wounds. So we have the context here today. We have what we need to understand what Jesus is talking about 
when he's walking with his disciples, but they are walking through the fulfillment of these prophecies, and, and it's, it's, doesn't, it's not computing. It's hard for them to understand. It says in Mark 9, 32, but they did not understand this statement, and they were afraid to ask him. Now, this, this reference to not understanding, actually, it could also be interpreted as they were ignorant, and they were ignorant to the meaning behind what Jesus was saying, and they were afraid to ask him. And I was just wondering, as I was preparing for today, was this fear actually a desire to not have a confirmation? Okay, so bear with me. What if the disciples didn't want what Jesus was saying to actually be true? So they wanted to remain ignorant about it. They didn't want him to confirm. It's better not to confirm that than to actually know because the Messiah that they were waiting for, if that was really who Jesus was, that means that they would be at like the top of the of the of the ladder in a sense. Culturally speaking, they would be the ones hand chosen by the Messiah himself to serve under him. And so then they would be the first ones to be given responsibilities in this new rule and reign of the Messiah. And it sounds an awful lot like what Jesus was saying wasn't what they were expecting. And I just want to, to get you a little bit into this mindset that wait, Peter, James, and John, uh, previously fishermen, are, are now thinking like, if Jesus is the Messiah that we're waiting for, what house do you want to buy in Jerusalem when he claims his rule and reign? And now we're hearing that that's not what it looks like it's going to be the, the, the case. It looks like what Jesus is saying that he's going to be the lowest of the low. And so if our rabbi, our teacher, is going to be killed, what does that mean for the people who actively chose to follow him and serve him? It's better not to ask. Perhaps this is what the disciples we're wrestling with in this moment, and we're not able to know for sure. But I hope that as we continue through this passage, we'll, we'll have a bit more context. But I have a question for you. Does anyone quilt? That's about the response I was expecting. Does anyone know what a quilt is? Yes. <clears throat> okay, so a quilt, maybe you've received one as a gift and it's stored away somewhere, or uh, you went to your grandparents' house, and it's the bed cover, and it's just this mixture of patterns and colors and fabrics that don't seem to share anything in common other than the fact that together they create a blanket. Uh, and so they serve the final purpose of being a blanket. And I've always personally marveled at the time investment that went into creating something that was so aesthetically displeasing. But, but I... I I'm sorry, I, no one said that they quilt. So anyways, <laughs> I, can, I do know that at the time, quilts were essential because blankets couldn't be bought. So they literally took worn out clothes, cut out the pieces that were still useful and made blankets. But today, if you, if you have the most premium quilt, you might even have some tassels on the end. And it's just, just a hideous thing to own. But as I was reading through these 20 verses, uh, Mark 9, 30 to 50, Honestly, I was thinking to myself, what are you doing, Dwight? Dwight Bernier, he's the one that prepares the sermon series for all of Church 21, all the location. And I'm like, I guess he just ran out of logical groupings of passages. And we just have to get through this today. It's just a patchwork of unrelated passages. Now, let's go back to the quilt. The quilt 
in their time was essential because people couldn't buy blankets. And after reading again and again through this passage and studying, something stood out to me. I think that there's a possibility that these verses share an underlying theme that's essential to us today. And so I just want to walk into that and, and lead you into considering what these passages could be teaching. And then another thing I wanted to address is that Mark, he's very efficient as he puts together the teachings of Jesus uh, on, Mar- on Peter's behalf. And, and it's not, we don't know 100% if this is all in one sitting or if Mark just decided to put these teachings together. Uh, but, it, but it seems like you could have an open-handed uh, perspective that the disciples walked with Jesus they, they went into a house, and then they moved on. And it is possible that all these teachings happen in one sitting. And so that's just the perspective I'm going to go from today. Uh, and so you can do some more research uh, c- this coming week on that. But basically, we see that they're on the road. He teaches them uh, about his future humiliation, his suffering, and death. This, the, the disciples are described as not uh, wanting to ask Jesus to explain further. So they're, they're, they're also ignorant about the meaning behind what Jesus is saying. And I believe this ignorance is actually emphasized as the passage continues. We, we get a deeper understanding of their lack of, under, uh, of understanding, and, the, and Jesus addresses this. So we're going to go back into Mark 9, and we're going to just read uh, 33. Um, so let's go here. And they came to Capernaum, and, he was in the ho- uh, and when he was in the house, he asked them, what were, were you discussing on the way? But they kept silent. For on the way, they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. And he sat down and called the twelve. And he said to them, If any one would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. And he took a child and put him in the midst of them. And, ta- uh, ta- sorry. and taking him in his arms, he said to them, Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me, receives not me, but him who sent me. So Jesus, he's just described to his disciples his future rejection, suffering, and death. And so there is a certain logic that should carry on that that if you're a follower of Jesus, maybe you should be discussing the gravity of the, the implications of what that means. If you've actively chosen to follow this rabbi, this teacher, and he's going to be killed, what does that mean about you? It's it's a moment where the disciples should be counting up the cost. But no, this is not what the disciples were discussing on the way. They, They were not only discussing, but they were arguing about who is the greatest. Okay? You can almost imagine as they were on the road, who are the ones that would stand out as having the strongest argument? Well, I think it might be Peter, James, and John reminding the group, well, who did Jesus invite to his transfiguration? Who was there? I, I'm just going to leave that with you guys. You can, you can figure that out on your own. And there's these three fishermen who are now seeing their, that they're in the inner, inner circle and that they have made it, they've had their big break uh, and the tables have been turned and, and now they're at the top of the ladder under the, and the Messiah, they're in his inner circle, and, and they're looking forward to, to what's coming, like I described earlier. And they're arguing about, about who is the greatest, who has the most value. And now they get settled into this home, 
And Jesus, he invites them in to, in a very private and personal context. He asks them a question. What were you arguing? What were, what were you discussing about on the way? And he knows what the disciples have been talking about or arguing about. And, and the passage says that they were silent because on the way, they had been arguing with one another about who is the greatest. Now, I just want to address that this lack of response of the disciples is in itself a response. It shows a level of, or it reveals a level of guilt and shame. They know that they can't outright tell Jesus what they've been arguing about because they know somewhere inside themselves that it's wrong, it was wrong. And, and this actually, we see a parallel in a passage we saw previously in Mark. In Mark 3, we don't need to go there, uh, but Jesus uh, was uh, with the Pharisees, and, and they were trying to accuse him. And so they're testing him, asking him questions, and Jesus responds in a question with them. And he says, Is it lawful to do good on the Sabbath or evil, to save life or kill? But they were silent. And, and in this moment, uh, in this passage, it says that Jesus, he was grieved by the hardness of the hearts of the religious leaders. And so I'm not right now, I'm not accusing the disciples of having hardened hearts, but I do see that there's a very little difference in their response to Jesus when he addresses the heart, okay? And so they were both silent before Jesus. We don't know exactly what they were processing, but I just want to read a quote from J.R. Edwards. Uh, and just to give you a little bit of context, uh, when Jesus predicts his future death, that's, uh, that's called a passion, the passion of Christ, okay? And so J.R. Edwards says, in all three passion predictions, Jesus speaks of the necessity of his rejection, suffering, and death. And following all three, the disciples voice their ambitions for status and prestige. Jesus speaks of surrendering his life. The disciples speak of fulfilling theirs. He counts the cost of discipleship. They count its assets. The disciples have yet to learn that the reward of discipleship come only as the, a consequence of following Christ on the costly way to Jerusalem. End quote. So the disciples, they don't yet understand or they, they have re chosen to reject the possibility of future suffering and humiliation as a disciple of Jesus. They don't want to count up the cost. They want to estimate the rewards of their position with Jesus. And so Jesus goes further in his teaching with the disciples. He says, if anyone wants to be first, he must be last and servant of all. And I can just imagine Peter being like, okay, yes, I, I want to be first, so I got to be servant of all. And he Jesus, he's setting his metric for an upside-down evaluation of value. It's his evaluation of value. And that he wants his disciples to understand that they're to follow in his footsteps. So the greatest aspiration of greatness in his kingdom is to aspire to be a servant of all. Do you hear that? That's what Jesus is saying. That to be the greatest, we're to aspire to be the least and serve those who are viewed as the least. And so Jesus, he illustrates this by, by inviting a child that must have been in the house um, where they were being hosted to come in the room with them uh, and stand in their, in their midst. And so this is a really great illustration because in those days, children were viewed as secondary, as not having arrived 
and as the very last, the least important, the last. And so I know that there's some children here today, and we're not saying that about you. Today, our culture places a high value on children. We know the importance that you hold. And so thank you for being here with us today, kids. And uh, so Jesus, he's inviting this child into their midst, and it, not only does he invite the child into the middle of the room, but he also uh, he takes the child into his arms. Uh, and I just want to acknowledge that previously we've seen Jesus use children as the, an example of humility. And I just want to make it clear that this is not what Jesus is illustrating through this child in this passage. He's using the child to represent those who are viewed as of little importance. Okay? So he's not telling the disciples, become like a child in this passage. He's saying, look at this child who represents all who are viewed as unimportant and like me, embrace them. Bring them into your arms and, uh, and, and be willing to serve people that you view as unimportant. That's what his teaching is addressing here. And so the disciples, they have these, um, these ideas about what, where their ministry is going. And what Jesus is saying, it's just breaking all of their, their understanding. Uh, and it's, they, they thought that their, their status as a disciple was just to be called by the Messiah. And now Jesus is saying that to be the greatest, you have to serve the least. Uh, and in turn, in this weird like paradox, then you are serving the greatest, as Jesus described, that embracing those who are viewed as unimportant is to embrace and serve Jesus, and then in turn, God. And so it's upside down thinking, even for us today. Can we not acknowledge that? That it happens so often that you'll get more credit, more acknowledgement for serving someone who's viewed as important than for going and serving those who are viewed as the least. It might often go unacknowledged if you're taking all of your time and resources and assets to serve those who are viewed as the least. And so this was something that was not culturally normal in the time Jesus spoke it. And I think that we need to acknowledge it's not normal for us today. And so now if we consider, like I mentioned earlier, that these passages are all happening in one sitting, we see John interject into the conversation, into the teaching, or perhaps even interrupt Jesus. And what he says seems to be a, a gross disregard for what Jesus has been saying so far. And let, let me explain, uh, but let's read that first. So it's not, um, Mark 9, 38 through 41. So I'll just read that, and you can read with me. John said to him, Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he was not following us. But Jesus said, do not stop him, for no one who does a mighty work in my name will be able to soon afterwards speak evil of me. For the one who is not against us is for us. Truly I say to you, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward. Now, as I read through this, I, I was wondering if perhaps John was trying to relieve a little bit of pressure off of himself or even the other disciples by bringing up this other topic. Well, out there, there's people that are doing ministry in your name, and they're not part of us. And I think that in his own words, he's expressing his lack of understanding. He's, ex he's showing his heart. He's revealing it with one word when he says us. 
They're not following us. Uh, I'll just read it. We tried to stop him because he wasn't following us. And so why didn't John say we tried to stop him because he wasn't following you? Okay, and so let's just keep going through this. Now, I believe this all points back to what Jesus is addressing in the first place, that the disciples are placing a value and a status on themselves that doesn't line up with Jesus's metric for evaluating value and status. And so this is possibly another insight into some sort of inflated uh, self-importance or, or just pride or ego that, that the disciples have because of being selected to study under Jesus, the Messiah. And so at this point, I believe that we see that John thinks that being a disciple of Jesus is a place of entitled privilege and, um, and it's exclusive. Now, as he's using this term, us, it could be in re- reference to like this closed circle, an exclusive elite group. And so I just want to acknowledge something. You might be here visiting Church 21 today, uh, and you're just exploring the church. You're exploring what the Bible teaches about, about Jesus, about faith, about Christianity. And maybe this is your perspective of Christians. Maybe you think that Christians are a stuck-up group of people that think they have all the answers to everything, and they're all high and mighty because they're in and you're out. Now, Jesus, he directly addresses this. He replaces the us with him. And he he uses John's, uh, I'll just go back in the passage here just to address that, because he does say at one point, um, just let me go here. Uh, for the, uh, verse 40, for the one who, um, who is against us, uh, who is not against us, is for us. But previously, he, he talks, he uses the word me, and then right after that, he talks about belonging to Christ. And so he's addressing John's use of us there. And also for the first time, he's naming himself as Christ. And we've never seen that before. And so Jesus, he's just making it, I believe, very clear that it's not about us, it's about him. It's not about following our thing, our religion. It's in Jesus' own words, it's about belonging to Christ. That's what the words he used in this passage. And so John's, his vision of the kingdom is very small. Can you imagine if Jesus' ministry was only for 12 disciples and that's where it ended? This elite group of people that got to walk with Jesus and that was it? No, his kingdom work is Big, much bigger than John was imagining and much bigger than often we can often understand because we, we're working through our own perspective and our own experience of what the Bible is teaching. And so I just want to give a little, I, like a, a little illustration on this because a couple passages ago in Mark, Jesus, he frees a demoniac from a, a, what they describe themselves as being legion, and then he sends this man back to his home to, to speak of, I'll read that verse actually, go home to your own people and report to them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. Okay, so this guy experienced the depth of isolation and damage of being possessed by demons. And he was sent home with a ministry of mercy by Jesus. What if he encountered someone that was possessed by a demon? I just want to think about that. And so Jesus had sent him out on a ministry of mercy as as his ambassador. So 
what if this guy met someone that was possessed by a demon? And what if he said, in the name of the one who freed me, in the name of Jesus, leave this man? Now, we do know that Jesus gave this man everything he needed for ministry, which was the name of Jesus and an understanding of what Jesus had done for him. So while we're just speculating about this, this man here, we know that there was someone somewhere that had started to free people in the name of Jesus. And it's clear that the kingdom of God is larger than just the disciples' own experience of it. They, they were seeing it as small. They were seeing it as just the things that they saw, they did, they walked with with Jesus. And Jesus is, is saying that it's not about that. It's, about, it's much bigger, and it's about me. It's not about you. It's about belonging to Christ. And so I just wanted to ask a question. What, is it, what does it mean to belong to Christ? And so I just wanted to give an example of that. And I believe for myself, to belong to Christ is, the, is to declare, just in the words that we read of um, Isaiah earlier, Jesus was pierced because of my rebellion. I, like Adam and Eve, I've rejected what God says is good for me. So I rebel against him and I follow what I define is good. Jesus was crushed because of my iniquities. Not only do I allow gross injustice to happen around me, but often I participate in this kind of wicked selfishness. And then the punishment for my peace was on him. I'm healed by his wounds. So my rebellion against God, my sinful life deserves punishment. And Jesus, he took that punishment in my place. He was wounded and killed in my place. And he, in doing so, made a way for me to be made whole and experience a restored relationship with God. The disciples, uh, the Bible teaches that Jesus is alive today and that he desires for you to belong to him. And so what does it mean to belong to Jesus? It's, it's to declare your faith in him. And it doesn't have to be the way I just described. That was just an example. But the one thing is clear. It's not about us and them. It's only about Christ. And the question today is, do you belong to Christ? Please just take a moment to, to engage with that question. Because if you can declare that you belong to Christ, but Jesus is inviting you as one of his disciples into this private context of teaching where we see the disciples uh, being taught. It's, it's a context where Jesus is rearranging life and rearranging your definition of uh, what value is so that it matches what he describes as value. Um, and just as he said, if anyone wants to be first, he must be last and servant of all. So then, is Jesus calling us today into humility, into lowliness, into servanthood of all? Is that our takeaway? Well, going back to the beginning and the discussion about comparing ourselves with others, I have a question for you. Have you at any point uh, during our time together as we've been working through this text, thought to yourself, man, I'm glad I'm not as bad as the disciples. 
I get it. I get what Jesus is saying. Be humble. View others as, as more valuable than myself. Value others above myself. Have you thought that today? Now remember, no response is in itself a response. Yeah, so I got you. Uh, and I just want to encourage you, Jesus, he's not quite finished with this teaching with his disciples in this, this closed room setting. And I don't believe Jesus is finished with us today either. So we're going to continue through. Uh, we're going to go to Mark 9.42 now. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believes in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. And if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands and go to hell, to the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame than with two feet and be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than two eyes and be thrown into hell, where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. So I believe it's possible that this teaching continues right after John's interjection and possibly the child is still in the middle of the room with Jesus. Maybe he's still got his arm around the child as he continues his teaching. Whether or not that's the case, we do know that there's just only about a three-day period before his crucifixion. And this is the, the last time Jesus, some of the last moments that Jesus has with his disciples to teach them and equip them. And he continues to address the issue at hand. That belonging to Jesus and receiving the humble servant heart of Jesus is more valuable than anything else. And so then he uses some of the most shocking and powerful imagery uh, that we see in his teachings. And that's on purpose. It's supposed to shake us up, to shock us. And we might have heard, if you've, if you've been in church uh, your whole life or, or for a season, you might have heard these teachings enough to become desensitized to them without even knowing the cultural significance. Because for the disciples, they, they would have been sh like shooken. <laughs> they would have been like, why, Jesus, are you being so intense? Like, this is a huge downer. And, and the reason is uh, because of their cultural understanding of the, the, just the images that Jesus was using. So the first one is a millstone. And being drowned. And, and so Jesus, he's teaching that if a disciple of Jesus were to declare that belonging to Jesus is something only for the privilege to experience, if a disciple was to prevent someone from coming to Jesus based on their value, or if a disciple was, uh, was to cause someone to doubt their salvation in Jesus, if a disciple were to prevent someone from belonging to Jesus, it would be better for him to suffer the worst death imaginable, to be weighed down and drowned. And so let me explain why this is the worst death imaginable. Because there was a very important Jewish ritual that there was, an, uh, and because of the ritual, there was a necessity for the body or at least the bones to be present for the ritual. And so if you were weighed down and drowned, and your body couldn't be recovered, 
you could not be put through that burial ritual. And so this, therefore, illustrates the worst imaginable death for a Jewish person. And so Jesus, he's using shocking terms that, honestly, today we just don't understand. We've seen so many pirate movies or things where people have a stone tied around their foot and they get kicked off, and you're like, okay, that's just the way that people die. But this is the worst death imaginable for the Jewish people. And so he, he's saying in this that no one, no, no child, no person that's perceived in society as less important, no person that's exploring faith or has recently found faith in Jesus should be hindered from knowing what it means to belong to Jesus. If you're to hinder someone from coming to understanding of what it means to belong to Jesus, it means you have a very small understanding of who Jesus is and and what his kingdom work was. And so he's reinforcing his teaching that the, the kingdom work that the kingdom of God is so far beyond his disciples' own experience and our own experience of it. It's not about us. It's never, ever, ever going to be about us. It's only going to be about him. Then he goes on and he talks about cutting off body parts. This is really absurd. And if we were to look at it just from our understanding today, okay, from a medical perspective, we all understand that if you have an infected body part, it needs to be either treated or removed because it will end up infecting your whole body, which will then lead to death. And so the disciples, they believe that their place with Jesus, their position in the inner circle is something that they somehow earned or that it was an exclusive place for them. And Jesus, he wants you to know that if you think that you can earn your place in the kingdom of God, you're going to have to start cutting off body parts that cause you to sin because you can't earn it. And we just know that, first of all, how impossible would it be to say like, oh, my hand caused me a sin, so I have to cut it off. Like no one would even do that. And Jesus emphasizes this impossibility just in the order that he, he lists these body parts, hands, feet, then eyes. But if you start with your hands, how would you cut off any other body part? It's just impossible. And it, it's just interesting to think about that um, intentionality that Jesus had in his teaching. So beyond the impracticality, the impossibility, no one would actually go to the place where like, oh, my eyes caused me a sin, so I got to gouge them out. It's just impossible. And so Jesus wants to address that we cannot earn our place in the kingdom of heaven by being good enough with our, uh, by, by not sinning, basically. But then there's also an additional layer here because the reference to hands, feet, and eyes, it could be a reference to the way that we perceive and interact with the world, the way that we walk through life. And so this, this reference to hands, feet, eyes could be just uh, a reference to basically a, a sinful perspective of the world. We definitely know that the disciples have been engaging with this. Jesus has been addressing this sinful perspective about it's we've got a place that's above others. We've some, we're somehow in an exclusive group. Jesus wants to cut that perspective out. But we can't, we can't do this. The disciples couldn't do this on their own. And he, Jesus in this moment, he's addressing the need for complete spiritual restoration. He's addressing the need for holiness. And he's calling the disciples into a view, into his view, where 
Your hands, your feet, and your eyes are used to serve all. And at the same time, he's addressing the fact that you can't even do it. And so at this point, the disciples do not understand. They're having a lot of difficulty. Jesus is using very extreme images here. And often, we don't understand either. But this is the point. Jesus and Jesus alone purchase a restored relationship with God. It's not our work. It's his work. It's Jesus' death and resurrection that it brings salvation. And that salvation is offered to all. And to reject the salvation offered to Jesus is to hold on to your own work and your own efforts, your own value. And uh, we know that this is, this is serious to take that perspective. Because you're going to have to start cutting off parts of your body that cause you to sin. That's what Jesus is talking about. It's impossible. And so he desires that everyone experiences restoration. And, it's, and he desires that all could belong to him and be made whole. He doesn't want people to be mutilated. He wants them to be restored. And so the reality is that our sinful actions, our desires, our mindset, they need to be cut away. But it's not going to be us that does the cutting. And so through this, this, even this teaching, Jesus, he includes several references to hell. I don't know about you, but I don't hear a lot of talk about hell anymore. And uh, especially not from the pulpit. But Jesus, he talks about hell a lot. And he, he talks about hell as being a place where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. And this is another image that we just don't get unless we've done a lot of study about it. And it's the fact that you might have heard about hell before as this abstract place of suffering. But when Jesus talks about hell here, the disciples are thinking of a literal place that they would never want to step foot in. And the reason is, is that the word hell Jesus uses is Gehenna. Uh, It's a name for the Hinnom Valley near Jerusalem, and it's a real place. Uh, And this place, the Hinnom Valley, was for hundreds of years, used as a place for human sacrifice. Eventually, human sacrifice was abolished. And then, since obviously no one would ever want to go there, they decided to use this ravine as a place for garbage and and waste and and fecal matter. And, And they just put everything there, and as it fills up, we'll be burning it. And so it's just a mixture of rotting and burning that will never end. And actually, to this day, the Hinnom Valley is still used as a, a garbage disposal area. And so when Jesus references this place, the disciples are thinking of a literal place known for the greatest spiritual darkness imaginable, a place where the, the practice of human sacrifice uh, took place for hundreds of years. Uh, and then now it's a place that absolutely no one wants to go to because of the constant putrid smell of rot and the fecal waste, and, and then there's the fires that are endlessly burning and smoldering. And so the disciples, at this point, they, they realize the gravity of what Jesus is saying. That you can't earn your place in the kingdom of God through your own actions. And if you try to do that, the destination is this, the worst place you can imagine. And they know that there's no way they want that to be their destination, and that no one should be destined to this place. So Jesus, he's calling his disciples to live as servants, to live in humility, to live in peace. And so he 
is also calling his disciples to present a gospel that's freed from their own ambitions and, and their own variations to, to their understanding, a gospel that's only about him. And so here's the truth. We, we can't do what Jesus is calling us to do in this passage. You might have been thinking today, okay, taking my note, this week I need to serve others and be humble like Jesus. But the reality is, and you need to hear this, that you're wrong and you can't. You cannot do what Jesus is telling us that we need to do. So then what, what is the point? <laughs> it's so confusing. Why, why? Well, here's the takeaway. You need more Jesus, more Christ, or you're going to fall short in every single way, every way imaginable. A heart of a proud person aspires to succeed and will compare themselves to others to validate their progress. Maybe you thought something like this. Well, the disciples didn't understand because they were ignorant, but I understood and I'm getting it right. Or you compare yourself to just others in in your, your home, your school, your workplace, where I've arrived at this certain place, they haven't. Or they've arrived and I'm not far behind them. I'm chasing their heels. And so we just need to acknowledge something. These messed up guys that were ignorant, they didn't want to ask Jesus what he was really saying because they were afraid what it could actually mean for them. Jesus used them to be the authors of the Bible because eventually they understood it wasn't about them, it was about him. And so in this passage, the disciples, they're guilty of small thinking. They're focusing on their pride, their status, their, status, their ambitions, and we're guilty of the same And we're guilty of this when we try to do what Jesus is calling us to do on our own. So your takeaway today, this might be shocking, it's, it's not to be humble, it's not to be servants of others. Your takeaway today is that you need to take a deeper dive into understanding what it means to become more like Jesus through his work, not through our work. So we just got two last verses and we're going to read them together. So turn back with me, Mark 9, 49. For everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. So Jesus says that everyone will be salted with fire. And so I believe that this is referring to the refining process that fire is used for, especially when you think about about metals. And those who belong to Jesus, the Bible teaches, they're given the Holy Spirit. And Holy Spirit is a refining fire that does the work of the spiritual restoration in the body and mind of those who belong to Jesus. The, The spiritual restoration that Jesus desires for us that we can't achieve for ourselves. And so, you know what? In this process, our sinful actions, our desires, our mindsets, they're going to be cut away. But it's not us that's going to be doing the cutting. And so as the Holy Spirit works in our lives, our understanding of what Jesus has done for us is increased. And our perspective of our presence in the world becomes more like Jesus. The work of the Holy Spirit is, in, is essential, but it's not always easy. 
At times, it may even be painful. You might feel like a part of you is being cut away. But it's an essential process. I don't know if you've read the Chronicles of Narnia before, but there's a, uh, a book called The Voyage of the Dawn Treader. And a boy named Eustace, he finds this massive treasure on this island. Okay? And in his lust, his selfishness, his pride, he plots to keep the entire treasure for himself. And in doing this, the book describes that he later turns into the actual image of lust, selfishness, and pride. He turns into a literal dragon. And once this happened, he's faced with isolation, loneliness, guilt, and shame, and and he repents. And, And in the book, he calls out to Aslan the lion, who's depicted as the, uh, the figure of salvation in the Chronicles of Narnia. He calls out to Aslan to help him, and Aslan tells him, go bathe in the pool and scratch off those dragon scales. And so he tries, he tries three times, and every time he scratches off these, the, the scales, they seem to grow back in place as fast as he can scratch them off. He's not going deep enough. So Aslan comes to him, and, and he says, you need my help. And Eustace, he, in this moment, he's filled with fear, but it's a reverent fear of the lion. And he, he, accepts, he accepted Aslan's help. And I'm just going to read like straight from the book. Eustace says, I was afraid of his claws, I can tell you that. But I was pretty nearly desperate now. So I just lay down flat on my back, and I let him do it. And the first tear he made was so deep, I thought he had gone right through into my heart. And he began pulling the sick stuff off, and it hurt hurt worse than anything I ever felt. He peeled that beastly stuff right off. Just as I thought I had done myself the other three times, only they hadn't hurt. I hadn't gone deep enough. I found that all the pain was gone, and then I saw why. I had turned into a boy again. And this is just, this is a picture that C.S. Lewis has given to us of what it looks like when Jesus cuts away that sin in our life. He wants to cut away today our small thinking, our pride, our own ambitions, and he wants to replace it with a metric of value and status that he defines. And so this happens through the work of the Holy Spirit, and it's essential. And so Jesus says that when this work is done in you, your presence in your home, in your school, in your workplace, in your neighborhood, is going to change these places. He uses the picture or the, of salt. And in those times, salt was a preservative, and that was the main use of it. And so a disciple of Jesus that's being changed by the Holy Spirit to be more like Jesus will literally preserve the places that they are in. They will stop society from decaying completely morally. And I just want to give you a little image of uh, example of this in, in our own church. We became aware of the illegal, non-consensual, abusive content, content that was being uploaded to Pornhub. And as a church, we said, this is where our presence in society says, the line is here. You crossed it. Get back over on the other side of the line. And so 
we protest this injustice right in front of their very doors that are found here in Montreal. And so you're going to hear more about a way that you can participate in, in being a salt through our own church in our society. But the because of the value Jesus has placed on you, because he gave his life for you so that your status could be changed from outcast to belonging, an understanding of this will change the way you interact with the world and it will change the places that you live. And so I just want to ask you a question because we've been talking about this, this, this change in us. Belonging to Christ is something that we don't earn ourselves, but Jesus, he bought and for us. He earned it on our behalf. Does this sound like good news to you? Because what I'm saying is that you didn't earn your place before God. And if you've been taught your life that you need to work to earn a good place before God, this might be destabling for you. It might be scary for you. But the Bible presents it as good news. So do you think that this is good news today? That you can't earn your place in the kingdom of God, but Jesus earned it for you. So your takeaway today isn't be humble and, and serve others. Your takeaway is, is this. Acknowledge that you're way worse than you evaluate. And you're way more loved than you can ever imagine. Timothy Keller, he illustrates it like this. This is our perspective, okay? This is our perspective of the world. This is how bad we are. This is how much we are loved by God. And then this is how God sees it. This is how bad we are, and this is how much we're loved by God. And so the question here today is, can you acknowledge the work that Jesus is doing in you through his Holy Spirit? And can you leave today knowing that the only metric for your value is God's love for you? And to let that change the way you interact with the world. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, I just thank you for your love. God, I know that we need to be reminded of our pride. And God, I pray that you would cut it away. I pray that we would, we would stand up against injustice, not because we think that we have to, to earn your love or to earn a place before you, but that we do that because you're changing us from the inside out, making us to be more like you. And God, if today there's someone here that does not know what it means to belong to you, God, I pray that you'd give them a faith to believe that, that they are received and loved by you because of the work Jesus did for them. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, God. I pray these things in your name. Amen.